All right, well, we're focusing all year on learning the way of Jesus. And, and a question that we asked uh, often in the first half of the year was really like, if the gospel is true, how then should we live as Christians? And, and that, that question, when you start with a relationship with God and go forward, touches every aspect of our lives, our relationships with other people, our work, our sense of identity, uh, what is right and wrong, our ethics, and so forth. Every aspect of life is changed and transformed by the good news of Jesus. Well, today we're starting a brand new sermon series uh, from the Old Testament in the Bible, uh, particularly on the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus in the Bible. Now, the Ten Commandments are really the cornerstone of the most famous and influential human legal code in history. Now, you might wonder, as a Christian, or perhaps just in general, why should we learn about the Ten Commandments today? After all, the Ten Commandments came into human history a very, very long time ago. Thousands of years ago, right? So why, why should we learn them today? We have our own law code here in the United States, right? And even as Christians, uh, wasn't like the law kind of a bad thing? There's different passages in the New Testament that seem to talk fairly disparagingly about the law in the Old Testament. Or um, isn't the law, including the Ten Commandments, kind of somehow the opposite of the gospel? Like there's law and then gospel? How do these things fit together? and How do they relate to the way of Jesus? Well, the answer is that the Ten Commandments matter today uh, to us today as followers of Jesus because the Ten Commandments and really the whole of the law in the Old Testament reveals God's will for us and how human beings ought to live. They reveal what is right and what is wrong according to God, both for individual people, for us, and for society. When Jesus was asked how to summarize the Old Testament law, some people asked Jesus, uh, what is the most important commandment in the law of the hundreds of laws and commands in the Old Testament? How do you summarize it? Jesus said it all comes down to two principles. Number one, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And second, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, as Christians, we call this the greatest commandment. Uh, to love God, and the second is like it, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And as I hope that we'll see, the Ten Commandments are a reflection or maybe a little expansion of the idea of loving God and loving our neighbor. The first four commandments of the Ten reflect our vertical-oriented relationship, our relationship with God. And what does it look like to love the Lord our God with everything in us? The remaining six commandments of the ten reflect our horizontal-oriented uh, horizontal relationships, our, our relationships with other people, whether that be friends or family or neighbors or coworkers or people at school, whoever you run into in the path of the course of your life. What does it look like to love our neighbor as ourselves? Well, the second half of the Ten Commandments really describe or, or expand on what it looks like to love our neighbor. But ultimately, through this series, uh, we will see repeatedly that the Ten Commandments points us directly to Jesus, to our need for Jesus, first of all, because of our failure to perfectly obey this law of love. 
but also to the power that is available in Jesus for us to actually learn to follow and obey everything that he has commanded for us. So with that, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, please open it to Exodus chapter 19. So Exodus 19, the Ten Commandments are so big, we, like a jumbo jet, need a long runway to get up into this uh, series here today. So we're going to start with Exodus 19, verse 1. Get a little context, and then we'll get into the, the ten words here. Exodus 19, starting with verse 1. On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to, to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself." Now, if you f obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words of the Lord, all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Now let's jump forward to chapter 20, starting with verse 1. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke these, all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is God's word. So the book of Exodus in the Bible is the second book of the Torah or the first of the five he, uh, books of the Hebrew Bible. And the Torah was initially written by Moses um, and edited down through history in some ways in different times. Uh, but Moses was the mighty prophet of the creator that the creator raised up to lead his people, the ancient people of Israel, who were the descendants of the family of Abraham and Sarah, out of captivity in Egypt and into the land that he had promised for them, the land of Canaan, or as we would say, the promised land. So the first half of the book of Exodus describes, uh, frankly, the wild events that really culminate here in the meeting uh, of the Creator and his people at Mount Sinai. So the creator had freed his people from slavery through many great and terrible signs and wonders, including the 10 plagues earlier in the book of Exodus and the parting of the Red Sea and ultimately the destruction of the armies of Egypt. And now here he would establish a covenant or an official relationship with the people of Israel. Now, these types of covenant relationships were common in this day between kings and other kings or, or, or a more powerful king uh, with a, a lesser kingdom. But here, a covenant was being made, created, between the creator and Israel. Now, God had promised that he would do this hundreds of years earlier in his conversation, uh, conversations with Abraham and Sarah. 
But in the fullness of time, and only after Israel had grown from a small tribe into a, a substantial group of people, one to two million people at this time, the creator raised up Moses to lead this people, this family of Abraham, to freedom. Speaking from uh, the burning bush, the creator revealed to Moses his personal name, the name of Yahweh, which is translated in, in our Bibles in all caps as Lord. So whenever in your Bible or Bible app you see Lord in all caps, it's translated in the Hebrew name of Yahweh, which means I am or I exist. The name uh, that God gives reflects his eternal and uncreated character, his nature. He is the creator, the maker of the heavens and the earth. His name is Yahweh. Yahweh is transcendent. He is over and above all of his creation. He isn't the creation, and the creation isn't one with the divine. Rather, he is the creator, and everything else is the creation, and he just is. That is Yahweh. But according to Moses, Yahweh never intended or desired to be separated or uninvolved from his creation, from us. So in the beginning, in the first chapter of our story in the Bible, it's clear that Yahweh made human beings, male and female, in his image and in his likeness because he loved us and wanted to be with us and for us to be with him. He was to be our God and we were to be his people and nothing was supposed to come between us. Every single human being, every single person, including you and I, were designed to live and move and have our being in him and with him. In other words, heaven and earth God's space and our space were meant to be together. But there's a problem. In the second chapter of our story in the Bible, tragically, sin entered into and broke or distorted or corrupted all things. The human beings who knew Yahweh and walked with him were tempted by an adversary, the devil, and rejected the word of God and the way of God. They turned away from him and chose their own word and their own way instead. Now to a great degree, this turning away has ruined everything in the creator's good and perfect world. Lawlessness reigned. Wickedness and evil became normal. Blood was spilled and people were oppressed and abused in all sorts of terrible ways down through the generations all the way to our world today. And so the world became a very different place than Yahweh God had wanted it to be. But even in the moment in Genesis 3 when the creator was explaining the consequences of this rebellion and the sin that now permeated his formerly good and perfect world, he still offered hope. He promised that one day a child would be born. To us, a son would be given and this son would crush the head of that ancient serpent, the devil, and deal once and for all with all of the problems associated with sin and death. Now this would result in heaven and earth, now separated, being able to come back together, 
without the creator having to destroy his creation. You see, one thing about Yahweh is that he is not only transcendent and eternal, uncreated, but he is also perfectly holy. To one who was also holy, Yahweh would be the most beautiful, most glorious one in existence. In fact, his holiness would cause you to sing for joy as it does the angels in heaven. But to one corrupted and stained with sin, as we all are, they could not stand in his presence and live. We would be destroyed, consumed with the just wrath of God against sin. So at the fall to sin, heaven and earth had to be separated. Otherwise, all of creation, the whole world, and everyone in it would have been destroyed as an act of divine justice. But surprisingly, in Yahweh's mercy, he was patient and waited upon justice. Instead, in the third chapter of our story, we see that this Yahweh God, the creator, moved not to judge us, but he started to enact or unfold a, a plan of salvation, a rescue mission through a particular family in a particular time and place, through the family of Abraham and Sarah, the people of Israel would be born. And through them, Yahweh God would rescue and redeem a people, including people from every nation, tribe, and tongue on, the, on this rebel planet. So understanding a bit more of the story, taking a step back and, and seeing where the Ten Commandments fits into the unfolding story of the Bible, we see it helps us understand why it would be wise for Yahweh to give this chosen people of Israel a new word, a new way, and a new law. Why? Because they needed to learn a new way in accordance with how God had intended for people to live. It would be a new way, no longer the way of the people and the culture of Egypt where they had lived for over 400 years. At this point in time, at Mount Sinai, we have to remember that the people of Israel were basically Egyptians. For hundreds of years, they were in, steeped in the culture of Egypt. They had friends and neighbors who were Egyptians, some of whom, like Moses, were raised by Egyptians. They would have looked like Egyptians. They would have known the gods and goddesses of Egypt. They would have been well familiar, in fact, probably practiced many of the cultural practices of Egypt as well. Now the way that the Lord God would give his people would be similar in some ways to the other nations and the other laws that were in existence at this time, which only makes sense. Some of the moral law is written on the human heart and people everywhere, regardless of what they believe about Jesus, understand to some degree what is right and wrong. But the law of Moses is different. So Yahweh God would give a law that would be similar in some ways to what we find in the culture, ancient cultures of Egypt, or in Acadia, or in Samaria, or other ancient Mesopotamian people groups and other people groups around the world. But it was also radically different at key points. 
which only reflects the unique character of Yahweh God as he has revealed himself in this covenant relationship forged at Mount Sinai. Yahweh told Moses and Israel, he said, listen, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the other nations on the earth, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, that's a bold claim. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the law here, including the Ten Commandments, was intended to be both a guide for the people of Israel in, in this new way, the way of God, the way of Yahweh, the Creator. Um, it was also to be a mark of their covenant faithfulness with Him. In other words, it was to be a mark of their relationship with Him. And finally, the law was intended to be a banner or a light into the world to reflect God's heart for human beings out into the world. Israel, as, he, as God says here, was supposed to be a kingdom of priests, a whole nation of people who saw it as their vocation to minister to the peoples of the world, to represent God to the people and represent the peoples to God as well a place where people could see God's character lived out in relationship in everyday life. So with that, just that, <laughs> let's, let's jump back into the first word or the first commandment of, of Yahweh God, the creator, the maker of the heavens and the earth. Chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Okay, let's pause here. So again, the Ten Commandments doesn't come down on high uh, from some nameless divine force into no context. These commands, this word from the Lord, comes down from a very specific one, Yahweh God, to a very specific people in the context of the exodus of Israel. So we see his personal name there in verse two. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh God. I am the one who rescued, rescued you out of Egypt. Now, why does this matter? Well, for, for one reason, Egypt was one of the most powerful and influential if not the most powerful and influential empires of this time and place, of their day. And so it was no accident that Israel was standing before the Lord on that day at Mount Sinai. They didn't just ask off of work and come. The first half of Exodus describes a lengthy process where Pharaoh, whose heart was hardened, did not want the people to leave, and God freed his people. It was the direct result of a series of miracles of God to demonstrate Yahweh's ultimate power and authority over all of the gods and goddesses that the Egyptians worshipped and served. You have a pharaoh. You have a whole pantheon of gods. You have horses and chariots. That would have been the newest military technology of their day. You have wealth and glory among the nations. You have the respect of the whole world. Big deal, says Yahweh. If Yahweh wants to liberate a people enslaved from even the most powerful kingdom of the earth, he can do it. In fact, it's not hard for him. 
So the giving of the Ten Commandments is done by a personal God with a personal name and a whole history, a whole story. Now the second reason why it matters that we start with God in the context of giving the law as part of this unfolding story of creation, fall, and redemption is critical for us Christians to understand. We must understand always the order of what happened. First, Yahweh God rescues his people. Then he gives them the law. First, he rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. Not because of their goodness or obedience to the law or even their potential for the future, for him, for God, for the benefit of God. He is clear later in in the Torah that the people of Israel were not the best or most impressive nation or people group on the earth. (laughs) That's cheerful. (laughs) Let me remind you, you weren't that cool. But God rescues these people purely because of his grace. They were a testimony of the saving grace of God. God saved Israel by grace, and then he gives them the law. He gives them the law of the covenant. So this means even before Jesus, even under the old covenant of Moses, salvation comes first and obedience comes second. Now every other religion and philosophy in human history says something the opposite of this. And that's why we start here. This is one of the key differences of Yahweh God and his way and his ethical system and his uh, way of living than every other religion and philosophy in history. Everyone else says that it is what you do that saves you. Every other system says that it is what you do that saves you. It is your obedience. It is your sacrifice. It is your goodness. It is, it is the amount that you have given or it's the amount that you have served that saves you. But Yahweh God is different. He rescues regular people by his grace and then gives them a law of love to learn to obey a law that reflects his heart for how life ought to work. It is critical for us to understand this today because this is not a one-off. This is the pattern of God for us in the new covenant in Jesus as well. The gospel is not a, a new word or a new way for us to follow in order for God to love us and bless us and accept us and save us. The gospel is the news that God has already done everything needed for salvation in Jesus. So today, just as if we were standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, we Christians have been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus and are now given a law of love as well. Saving grace is the context for the commandments. Grace first, and then a law of love. Now, this is something that we'll continue to remind you of throughout this series because it is so important. And when we get the order wrong, we lose the gospel. So in light of God's saving grace, of this specific personal 
God named Yahweh, the creator and the savior who rescued Israel from Egypt, what then is God's will for us? What does God want for us in our lives? How does he want us to live? What is right and what is wrong? Well, his first word to us is found in verse three. Very briefly, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, the NIV has a footnote which says it could be you shall have no other gods before me or besides me. Both kind of work, actually, if you think it through. The original language of most of the Old Testament in our Bibles is the language of Hebrew. And the Hebrew in this text literally says, you shall have no other gods before my face, says Yahweh God. So this command is, is the origin of what is called today as monotheism in history. Judaism, Christianity, and eventually Islam, which was based to a degree on the Hebrew Bible, they all claim that there is only one God, uh, the maker of the heavens and the earth. Uh, before Exodus 20, verse 3, no other religions ever made this exclusive of a claim. Now, uh, many people within the context of a pantheon of gods or polytheism, as we would call it today, uh, would re perhaps recognize one of the gods as primary or supreme or the most powerful among the gods and goddesses and therefore de demanding more of our worship. But, but no one else made this claim before this command to Moses. The Egyptians had many gods and goddesses um, just as the other people groups around uh, the world have always had. People are religious. Inherently, people worship everywhere, all the time. Occasionally, people will claim that there is no God, but that is the, a tiny fraction of human beings in all of history. So in the Egyptian pantheon, there were many gods and goddesses, and often those gods or goddesses would represent a power or authority over a certain little part of life. And maybe they're important parts of life, but, but only one part of life. So there might be a God that represented power or authority over uh, wisdom, or over war, or, or potentially over the harvest, or over fertility, and all these different aspects of life had their own gods and goddesses. The, the, the practice often was to sacrifice to those different gods and goddesses so that those areas of your life would go well. In other words, it's what you do that saves you regarding wisdom, war, harvest, or fertility. They worshiped and served these gods, and they believed that they were responsible for, for giving them these blessings or benefits. The Akkadians and Sumerians before the Egyptians, and then the Greeks and Romans after, afterward, they all believed in a pantheon of gods, of many gods and goddesses. So it's in this context, surrounded by the belief of many peoples, all peoples, in fact, uh, or almost all peoples at this time, um, of many gods, people worshiping many gods and goddesses. And it's in this context that Yahweh God says that the first thing to know about his word and his way and what is right according to him in the world that he has made is that there is only one. According to him, there is not a pantheon of gods, and Yahweh God is not the first among many. These are only human creations. 
There is only one, and he will not share his glory with anything or anyone else. Now, of course, this would be an incredibly arrogant claim and, and culturally insensitive claim, unless it were true. But if it's true, then it would be the most loving thing in the world to realize that the gods and goddesses of the peoples, of other people and things, those things that our hearts tend to run after in worship are actually not God. Why? Well, very simply, because what use is it, what good is it to pray to or sacrifice to or to serve something or someone that isn't there and has no actual divine power to do anything about our lives or the problems in this broken world? As I tell people often, if Jesus isn't who he claimed to be and didn't do what the eyewitnesses said that he did, then none of this matters at all. We should all go home and take a nap. There would be no benefit to church. But if, as Yahweh has demonstrated from his ability to rescue Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and if, as the whole Bible claims, that there is only one God, and he is not one of many, and he is not the primary of many, then learning more about who he is and what he has done and what he wants for our lives is of utmost importance. It is of first importance. Nothing is more important. Wake up from your nap and come and hear what Yahweh God has done. If God is God, then we must listen to him and learn to obey his word and his way. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, how do we apply this commandment to our lives today? We actually aren't a part of ancient Israel. We're not standing at the foot of Mount Sinai seeing the God fireworks going off above us. We are here today. We're trying to learn the way of Jesus. What is this claim that there is only one God, one true and living God who is the creator and the savior? Well, today I wanted to give you some extra details about the story leading up to this series in the Ten Commandments in order to help us understand where this law of love is coming from. We must know the story because it is not just Israel's story. It's Yahweh's story, and if it's his story, then it's our story too. Now second, we must remember that the law of God and obedience to the law is not the way of salvation. It's the way of following Jesus. Remember, Israel received the law only after they were liberated from Egypt. Now today, for the followers of Jesus, we are no longer under the old covenant, the old relationship that God established with the ancient people of Israel with, through Moses at Mount Sinai. We're under a new covenant, a new relationship, a new agreement, which has a new law as well. And the law of Christ is again a law of love. For the followers of Jesus, we are not saved by loving the Lord our God, heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourself, although that is a, th a theologically liberal claim today, that the gospel is love your neighbor, but that is not true. The gospel is Jesus has done it, therefore we are under the command of Christ to love. 
We have been liberated to love. Third and finally, we must see in this first word or command of God that our obedience to love God and to love our neighbor is first and foremost, and nothing is more important than this, rooted in a covenant relationship with God. The radical claim of the Christian faith, the radical claim of the Bible, the whole of the Bible, is that the creator God, Yahweh, has done all of this, has unfolded this plan of salvation, has worked this rescue plan in order to reestablish a personal relationship with human beings. Now, this plan, of course, from our perspective, culminated many years later when it was, in fact, the seed of the woman, the child of promise, who came into the world. In fact, it was none other than the son of Yahweh himself. It was Jesus Christ who came into this world. He was the one who worshiped and served and had a relationship of obedience with his Father in heaven that was perfect. He was without sin. And he was the one who modeled for us what it looked like to have no other gods before or besides our Father in heaven. And he was the one who died so that we might be forgiven for all of the times that we have been unfaithful to a faithful God. His death and his resurrection has provided the way that was promised and foreshadowed here at Sinai. And it was a way that would fully restore the relationship between people and God. There is only one God the maker of the heavens and the earth. And there is only one mediator between God and mankind. And his name is Jesus. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, you and you alone are God. You are the maker of the heavens and the earth. You are our creator. And for that, we owe you everything in our lives. And yet we are so quick, as our ancestors were as well, to turn from you, from your word, and from your way, and we want to make our relationship with you not exclusive. We want to make our relationship with you of just one of of many different sources of power or blessing or hope or identity in our lives. Our Father, would you forgive us for this wickedness and this foolishness of running after these things which will always fail to fulfill. Would you help us, Father, to not only to uh, see, but to enjoy this exclusive relationship that you have called us into, ultimately through the person and work of your son, Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have made a way for us to be reconciled with God and made right in relationship with him. We ask that you would grant us the power through your Holy Spirit that we would set our hearts and minds and souls and strength in love upon you and you alone. Keep our eyes fixed on you 
and forgive us when we fall. Thank you that you empower us to obedience, to learn a law of love because you have saved us by your grace. We are eternally grateful and we give you all the glory, honor, and praise for your wisdom, for your holiness, for your goodness, for your love. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.